The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything that you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads, ensure that you can take on any adventure. Available H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud. Standard third-row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together. Available dual wireless charging pads so no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead phone. I've been so pumped to take a couple of friends with our road bikes to some of the trails nearby, and now I can bring the entire crew, my dog, and all of our gear with that third row. Learn more about the new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. On this episode of The Heat Check, it's here. It's here. I've been teasing it for months. It is finally time to drop the one-on-one with Toronto Raptors head coach Nick Nurse. You're going to hear Nick Nurse talk about everything from roster construction to Scotty Barnes to jazz music. We cover, and that's I'm not talking about Danny Ainge and Rudy Gobert, I'm talking about actual jazz. Uh, we cover just about everything. It's Nick Nurse's world, and we are just living in it. So do me a favor. It's actually not true, but... Just drop the beat. So after the Jerry West interview, I decided I liked narrating these. And this is a very clean interview. There is no audio issues. But I do think that giving additional context and what we were doing, what we were thinking uh, going into the interview in each section makes sense. So... First and foremost, getting an interview with Nick Nurse has taken me years, literally, literally years. His book came out in 2019, I think, 2020, and I tried to get an, I tried to get an interview with him in like the summer or fall of 2020, and we got it set up. It was happening. It was on this league. He was all down to do it, and then all of a sudden, I don't know why, but the interview was canceled. There was no, there was no rescheduled date. Nothing. And I've been trying to get him in, trying to get him in, trying to get him in. And head coaches in this NBA, they're busy guys. They're scheming, they're trading, they're wheeling, they're dealing, they're traveling. And so while I was at Summer League, I remembered, oh, yeah, everybody's here. So I sent him a little texty text, and I said, hey, by any chance do you have any time in the next day or two uh, to sit down and finally do that interview? I can do it literally any time you want. And because I've been preparing for this interview, I don't know, for two years, I had notes written down. And I even mentioned, hey, there's some things that have gone on in this league that sort of correspond to some lessons that I've learned in your book that I really would like for us to discuss. And he mentioned, he got back to me, hi, how are you? Yes, how about today? Today! Perfect. Let's do it. So we did! Uh, I think he's one of the most remarkably deep people. Uh, very introverted dude. Very funny. Very gentle energy. Uh, very musical. Everybody has talked about that. There's a million articles. But he actually brings his piano and his guitar with him everywhere he goes. On the road. He had it with him at Summer League. He mentioned that to me. So the level of commitment to take that amount of equipment with you and all those bags dope so let's start out by sort of I guess getting into the mindset and I wanted to start with a conversation and a question that was non-basketball related knowing that from his book him and his mom were really really close his mom passed away in his first year as head coach of the Toronto Raptors obviously we know what happened he not only won the title in that year but also ended up writing a book about the autobiography of his life so I thought it would be a very proud moment for a mom to know all this 
but his answer about whether she was proud of him or whether she would have been proud of him writing a book about the autobiography of his life was even better than I expected. How proud do you think she would have been to see you have your name in print as the author <laughs> of your life story? Um, I don't know about that one, right? But I think that a couple things my mother would be proud of. I mean, she loved the Raptors, watched it, you know, never missed a game, had a lot of merchandise. You know, she was a she was a really big fan, obviously. Um, so, but she also was, she'd be probably more proud of me that I'm still playing the piano and the things that she tried to get me to do when I was a kid that I was reluctant to do because I was chasing every ball bouncing that I could find. I had five older brothers and played every sport known, known in our area and didn't want to play the piano there, but it, she ingrained it in me and I've come back to it. She'd probably be most proud of that, to be honest with you. The fact that you did stuff creatively or the fact that that is now integrated into your life? My, my mother was very, her side of the family is super uh, musical. I, I wouldn't say artsy, but they, they really believed in, in um, you know, that everybody should play an instrument, that we had pianos in the house and we had, you know, like all my brothers and sisters played something, right? It was, and her side of the family, there's there's tons of like, you know, they're, they're professors in music at, at university now and like yeah. things like that. So it was just, it was just a thing for her that she really loved. You know, she'd seen every musical that she could get to when she was uh, uh, growing up or whatever she could get to when she, and she loved them. That's it. It was just part of who she was. Was she musical herself? No. Really? No, she wasn't. Just enjoyed it. She was a music lover to no end and, and really wanted the kids to share that. How uh, how did she feel about hip hop? <laughs> I don't think I ever had a conversation with her about that. I don't think so. My my mother is an interesting story too. Is she got married at twenty nine, started having kids at thirty, and had nine. Wow. And so she she was you know pretty pretty. Uh, she was had me when she was forty three. So she was you know when I was um, coaching. Well, actually, she passed away during the first year of my head coach. Right. In in gig when we were we were out in the West Coast and. I got, I mean, they, you know, got back. I, I did a lot of flying there. I, we were in, we just had landed or just took off for LA. My sister called me and said, you better, you know, when you land, you better come home. So I did and got to, got to see my mom. And then she passed away. And then I flew back to, I think, met the team in Golden State and then flew right back for the funeral and then flew back to Portland. So I was doing a little flying back and forth, but um, I don't think we had ever, ever had a conversation about hip hop. <laughs> just never came yeah, up on no, the radio. No. In Nick's book, he also discusses how much friction the trade, the DeMar DeRozan trade made on the, the team, considering that Kyle Lowry and DeMar were best friends, right? Kyle Lowry was fucking pissed. And that's well documented. And he discusses how important it is to work through that friction, to handle the elephant in the room, to tackle that no matter what, head on versus some things also needing to kind of let time cool them off and settle them down. And given where we're at in the NBA landscape, there's a lot of that going on. A lot of tiptoeing around, players getting traded without anyone knowing why, uh, players getting coaches fired without anyone knowing why. And I think that there's a lot of, I would say, a lack of conflict resolution. So I wanted to get his perspective on these types of situations and what he would do uh, given that James Harden left the Nets given that what was looming around the summer league was that Kevin Durant wanted to be traded and whether teams should allow time to pass which they did or whether they should appease these players and do whatever that is whether that's trading them or firing a coach what have you we do see that that's what the Nets did decide to do and KD decided to pull his trade request off the table. Listen to what Nick thinks about these types of situations. How do you like, how do you make sense of that type well, of a thing? Well, first of all, it, it is it, there's a lot of things in this job that are part of the landscape or come with the territory, right? Um, so accepting that these things are going to happen and, and knowing that you're going to have to deal with them, I think prepares you um, 
when they do happen that it's not so stressful or such a worrying lose sleep thing over it's it's part of the business and it's part of the the landscape right so that's the first thing second thing is i'm way more on the side of um you know let's talk it out you know what what's the problem and here's how you see it here's how i see it as a kind of curator of the organization like like my job is to do what's best for the organization at all times right so i have to give my viewpoint uh speaking for the entire organization a lot of the time so and 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 usually there is a lot of common ground there's a lot of shared ideas there's a lot of understanding that 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 irons irons those thing out i think what you mentioned of kind of taking your hands off the wheel and, and letting it play itself out it happens but I would probably be in the camp where I wouldn't do that as much. I, I like to tackle as honestly and frankly as I can whatever problems are, are facing us. So do you think making those changes, whether that's move, changing coaches or allowing players to move teams, is that is that addressing the elephant? Is that, it, what, what is that? Like, should should you say, okay, like we're going to tackle whatever this issue is between player and coach or player and player, or do we just say, okay, let's let them move on? Or, or well, I think I think like in any uh, group setting or relationship, there's always probably a point where sometimes moving on is the right answer, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I also think that maybe going back to your question is there is a time element that heals things sometimes, right? right? You try to work through, try out, try to get a plan, try a couple point A, point B, point plan C, whatever you want to yeah. call it and see if you can improve it. And then in the end, if it's just not right, then, you, then maybe you do find a new um, home or solution to it. But I think that, um, I don't know. It's, it's, I think too, that, I be careful how I say this, but I think that it's a lot more um, mediaized mm -hmm. than the problems really are. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I think I think there's a lot of talk about this, that, and the other thing. And in the reality, the problem isn't nearly as big as everybody's making it out to be. Right. And it's interesting because is that a word? Media media eyes. We can use that. <laughs> we can use that. It does feel to me that teams can be very quick to move on from a player. Uh, and move them when they are asking to be moved. I think that there is no case more prominent than James Harden. I don't know what happened there. I don't know what the straw that broke the Harden's back was. Um, but I wanted to hear his perspective on whether time could have solved that, considering how good this team was. It was a shoe print away from going to the finals and maybe winning it all. Listen to what he has to say about it. Because when I think about, like, James, I think that there was possibly a way – a path forward for that to be repaired yeah. if there's success on the court yeah. if you have all three of them together mm -hmm. especially since the uh the mandate changed where kai was able to play you get success or maybe if katie's foot wasn't on the line mm -hmm. you know maybe things the course of nba history is different and so maybe you say you know i get you're not happy right now but we're writing this thing out because we think we're a championship caliber team and we don't want the dominoes to fall from here well my first comment is this is I got enough to worry about with my own team yeah to worry about what's happening at other teams yeah but I, I understand your your point broader point you're trying to make with the question and I agree with you I think yeah I mean I don't have any idea the specifics of what right went down there but um you know I would say what we just talked about sometimes um letting time kind of heal it and trying to work through it um, you know, maybe we result in a different outcome for sure. Yeah. Surrounding this KD trade request, there's a lot of boomers out here saying, fuck KD, don't trade him. He's under team control. What can he do? Very old school perspective. And they want to know, pundits too, how come teams can't just say no? So I asked him, how come teams can't just say no? I think he's also, what's interesting too, is he's very much on the side that players aren't very effective if they're not happy. I think this, I think that if um, someone becomes, you know, disenchanted or super unhappy and miserable and they don't want to be there, yeah. then what are you going to get out of them? 
right? Yeah. If they're just dead set that this is not working for me and I don't feel good here, I need a change of scenery. I think that a team, you probably don't want somebody that doesn't want to be there, right? Yeah. And I think that's where it all stems from. And yeah, maybe there was less requests like that in the good old days. Yeah. Or maybe there was a lot more behind the scenes where like it wasn't Kobe. so public or whatever, right? Yeah. Like, and um, they probably did, again, what you suggested, they ride it out and, and, yeah. they, and they get through the stormy, stormy waters and it's okay, you know, a little while later, you know, or they just, like you said as well, and they just say, we aren't trading you, you know, figure yeah. it out. I mean, but I don't think that's, that's really the culture we're in now. What do you think is the ramifications uh, of a team? Like outside of that player interaction, reputation around the league or whatever, if it's if they say something like, I'm sorry, we can't get what we want from you. You have four years left or three years left or whatever the case may be. And uh, so you're kind of, you're kind of here. Well, I, I would say too that, and if you look at this from a player's point of view, you know, there's always a time where the team can just trade you too. They've got you under contract and they aren't necessarily just boom, moving you like out of nowhere. Yeah. That happens a lot. Tons. Right? So there's there's the players that see that and say, well, if that's the case, then why can't X be the case on our side too? Um, I don't know. What was your question again? What do you think the ramifications are well, if think, somebody does sure. put their feet in the ground and say, sorry? Well, I think, I think we see some ramifications where people would – you know, um, not look too kindly upon that. Yeah. Right. I think. I think. Agents, other players, free agents. Well, media. You yeah. know, they get. They get. You know, they get. You know, a hard time. You know, maybe from fans, maybe from media, maybe from. Uh, you know, whatever. Um, you know, some of them do, some of them don't. Maybe it's just the, the individual case that matters. In this era of sports, uh, first-round picks are being traded away like crazy for teams that think that they can win right now. There are articles being written about whether they matter or not. There's memes being thrown out by players like LeBron James, like fuck them picks. And first round picks are being used to construct roster with stars. And I wanted to talk about that with him in the context of how you use these assets, whether those assets really are valuable enough to keep or whether they should be used as chips for a trade. Note since no team has been better about finding value late in the draft and also traded first round picks to get a star in order to win a title. I thought this was an apropos time to ask him about that, especially considering his assistant is the head coach of a team that just traded a million picks for Rudy Gobert. I mean, obviously, the higher the pick, the better your chances of finding a good player that can impact your organization and be around for a long time. Yeah. Right? Um, but there's many, many, many cases of late first round, mid first round, second round players who are some of the best players in the league. So there's that part of it. But I think you're right. They are, for lack of a better term, they're assets for the organization, right? They're they're, and you say, well, they're not worth whatever, but you know. What they are worth is is probably um, other chips to throw in another deal, mm-hmm. right? You know, they they're, they're just assets that get included in deals, and they they seem to move around in circles a lot right now, right? Like you know, everybody say, well, this team doesn't have any picks now. What are they going to do? And then they trade one of their stars, and now they've got a whole bunch of them again. Mm-hmm. So so it's like they their assets, their player right now, and if they give that player up, they their assets become a bunch. It's of like picks. a house. Right, like you've got a house that's worth so. or whatever, a piece of, you're like, oh, well, maybe I don't have a lot of cash in my bank account, but I've got all this real estate. Right. If I needed to flip it for cash, I, I could. Yep. The Gobert trade rocked the summer league, so I asked Nick about it, knowing how close he is with Wolves head coach Chris Finch. He, I wanted to get his explanation on why Minnesota pulled the trigger on Rudy Gobert and how he would get used to Carl Anthony Towns. Very fascinating conversation and a nice panacea to people who are saying that this trade made no sense. Clearly, Nick feels Minnesota can win now and got better, a lot better, and what that also shows about what this team feels about Carl Anthony Towns. How, how do you imagine Rudy gets used alongside of Carl of Anthony Towns, um, especially in today's modern NBA where mm-hmm. we're seeing, you know, bigs in and bigs out and mm-hmm. some of them – getting ran off the floor, and, and also how does that, you know, unlock things for, for Towns? Well, I think 
first of all, I'll answer the first part of your question. Um, they're, they're obviously do a deal like that because they think they've got pieces to win now. I mean, more than they are winning. I'm not saying like win it all now, but I mean, right. obviously that's everybody's end goal. But they obviously feel like they've got enough pieces that they went out and kind of gave up some of their future, right, for the immediacy of the results this season. Okay, so that's the first part of it, why they do it. That's that's what they think, right? That's what any team would do that thinks they could um, make a jump up, right? Um, and how are they going to play together? I think it's going to be super interesting. I think, um, I mean, Gobert who is who he is, right? He's going to rim protect and lob dunk and, and do what he does at a super high level. I think Towns is, um, you know, certainly plays a lot from the perimeter. Yeah. Right, he shoots threes, he, he trails and drives it a lot. He's a playmaker out there from the outside, even though he's got the size that he has. So I think it'll work out just fine. I mean, I mean, they'll have their they'll have their um challenges. You know, teams will say, Well, we can't match up with them. Well, let's just go small and quick and see if we can't just drive around you know, or whatever, play faster, pay you know, they'll have some some, you know, ways teams will have some ways to try to go against the grain of what they have because you just can't man who's got who's got two guys that big not very many teams right and to me it kind of feels like as I watch from the outside wow this team really wants to put Carl in position to do all the things that he does really well doesn't have to play five can kind of come off weak side be a block monster but not worry about getting into foul trouble Mm -hmm. not worry about shouldering the load defensively and now you've got him really in the best potential spot and it kind of showcases what minnesota thinks about him don't you agree 100 percent. i think i think that he should have a lot more time to focus on his offensive skills right instead of like yeah. you just mentioned all the things he has to do now he's still gonna have to guard somebody he's gonna have to guard for it. He he's not like i don't think as well he's he's a he's a pretty pretty good defender already i mean not not like i think people portray him to be but this will again you know what's a what's a strategy against Carl anthony towns well it's to make him play defense every possession when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply with threats to our nation waiting around every corner adaptability is more important than ever when conditions change without notice quick strategic thinking is crucial and with obstacles consistently impending determination is essential in overcoming them it's this willingness decisiveness and resilience that sets marines apart with our fighting spirit we don't just fight battles we win them marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown and through adaptable problem solving we do just that learn more at marines.com the raptors very unique team filled with threes and fours no true center. A lot of guys somewhere between 6'7 and 6'9 until they recently drafted Arizona center Christian Coloco. They did not have a true center. But we are in the space right now where roster flexibility really matters. And I wanted to ask him about given how certain teams are really constructing that roster, how do you build something that can contend with anyone? And what does that mean about finding a big man? What does that mean about the value of a big man? Sort of a complex question, but Nick Nurse, being the guy that he is, dumbed it down for for me and dumbed it down for anyone listening. How do you think the versatility across the league in terms of how rosters are constructed change what you and Masai and just other people around the league think how they think about roster construction and team building? Yeah, I mean, for us, you're right. Like, listen, we got a lot of... uh six, eight and above guys with seven foot plus wingspans on our team, like nine of them. Yeah. Right. Or eight or nine, something like that. Um, so we think that's a, you know, interchangeable player that we can use. And we obviously, Scotty plays point guard, Pascal plays point guard. So we've got the ability to kind of go out there with a whole, whole five of them. But uh, in Christian's case, again, it makes us, gives us something, again, we don't, 
really have a rim protecting shot block, lob threat. Um, so it makes us more versatile, right? Like you said, there's certain games where you need that. There's certain games where you, you don't need it, right? Um, and there's and it gives you a chance to at least have another kind of tool in the toolkit, I think. And that's why I like the pick. And the big thing I like about it is he really, he really runs and he really moves his feet. And, you know, it's not like he's you can't play. You can play every coverage with this guy, and he can switch at seven foot. He can get out there and move his feet and all that stuff. So he's almost like another wing player, even though he's over seven foot tall. Like a Rob Williams sort of role? Uh, yeah, yeah, like that. There's different models for different types of constructions, right? We're seeing the Warriors go small. We're seeing Cleveland at one point last season go super big. More traditional setups like what Philly has done with Joel Embiid. I wanted to know how you compete with these different teams. I wanted to get his thoughts on the traditional big, whether they're going extinct. His answer was wildly interesting about how seven-footers are actually changing. It's not the fact that they're no longer getting seven-footers. It's now that seven-footers operate like a wing. Well, I think that the true seven-footer was more of a banging type throw it in the low post mm -hmm. type of center. That That's what kind of the center position historically has been seen as. And now, as you, you've already mentioned, a bunch of centers, and most of them are a little bit um, more agile, and, and you don't necessarily pound it inside to them, but they're more they're more screen and roll threats at the rim. They're more rim protectors. They're, they're able to switch and play, you know, m multiple coverages and stuff, so. It's kind of weird, I think. It's a it's a it's a weird situation because you say, well, the big man is is gone, or it's a dying breed, or whatever. Well, what is big? I mean, these guys are all seven seven one, seven three, seven foot. It's pretty big in my book. So, <laughs> and, and they are the the center maybe is morphing into more of an athletic type of position. Yeah, because I hear you know a lot of people who will either make decisions in terms of who gets paid, why, they'll say, well, we anybody who can get ran off the floor shouldn't be getting X because you know teams like Dallas or LA uh, can basically go five out and, and kind of yield you somewhat useless in this particular matchup. Is that valid? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so, and again, I think that the key of it is is probably being flexible enough or strategic enough to combat it. I don't know about you guys, but I was personally floored uh, about the Scotty Barnes pick. Watching that draft night, I think a lot of people thought they were going to take Jalen Suggs, especially considering how well he played in the tournament. It's a point guard-driven league, et cetera, et cetera. They zigged when everyone expected them to zag, and that was the first moment where it clicked for me what the Raptors were trying to do, just a little bit of what they were trying to do. So I wanted, and I was always curious about the mindset of it. What exactly are you trying to build here? It feels like you're doing this. Why are you doing it? And, and what exactly are you looking for? He gave a very robust answer and a very detailed answer about the types of players that they want on this team. Probably one of the most detailed that I've heard, and I'm really happy to share it with you guys. And I think the fact that was the most interesting was that they want these long, athletic players who can literally do everything on a basketball court. A roster full, a roster full of positionalist players. That is bananas. Thinking about that compared to how other teams construct their roster, given how a lot of teams have players who are limited. A lot of teams have players who have very specific roles. He wants guys who can play any role, and I thought that that really gives me a lot of optimism about the future of this team. What are some of the most important things in a player besides length that you guys look for when you're scouting players? Yeah, yeah I mean, I think, I think what we're trying to do is, um, or, or, you know, it's not like, like we made it up or anything or invented it. I mean, it's like, it's like I want guys to be able to do everything. Yeah. Right. I want them to grab a rebound and push it up the floor, and be able to pass, create offense at the end of a, a semi break or a, you know a transition type play. Um, want them to be able to switch. Want them to be able to drive it to the rim. Want them to be able to space up and shoot a three. Want them to be able to play pick and roll as the handler. Play pick and roll as the setter. Right again, it's just can can we get a bunch of guys that are really, you know, versatile? Can they do it all? You know, can they drive it? Can they shoot it? Can they post? 
can they rebound? Can they switch? Can they, you know, and, and that's, that's just basketball. Yeah, no, it's like, it's like, you know, everybody's talked about positionless, right? Mm -hmm. There is no position. Everybody's doing everything. I heard a, a quote on that same NBA TV interview you did where it was competitiveness and love for the game was what we were really impressed with in terms of Scotty. That was the number one yes. thing. Yeah. Uh, is the, can you talk a little bit about the intangible of love for the game, <laughs> intangible for ultimate competitor? Because that's something everyone can kind of say. Yep. How do you, how do you, how do you see it? Yeah, how yeah. do you see it? Well, you see it, um, you know, with him, he's, he's again, he's super infectious, like, like, loves basketball, loves Toronto, loves being a Raptor. Like, he was so excited when we picked him. And, you know, I mean, just, there's just a lot of passion there that fuels a lot of his, um, you know, great play. You know, it, it gets him in the gym working hard. It gets him in the weight room getting stronger so he can be more physical. It gets him um, working on, on his game. I mean, he loves to play. He loves to guard. He loves to pass. Those are pretty good qualities, right? You know, he lo he loves defense and and he loves seeing his teammates score off of one of his passes. And that is a um it, it's a little unique, right? I think and um I think he's got a super super future ahead of him cuz he's got some really good foundational points to his character. You could tell he was super loyal cuz he came for and defended OG when all that stuff yeah, was yeah. going on. I was like, wow, for a young rookie to defend his teammate one year in, yeah. I was like, wow, that's really impressive. He's a natural leader, you know, even though he's only 20 and he's, he's you know, a rookie on the team, he's, he just has that kind of personality and game and plays with, you know, leading by example quite a bit. And he's just kind of a, you know, guy people gravitate to. When the Raptors traded Kyle Lowry, it left behind a leadership gap that has taken some time to fill. In this clip, Nick speaks about what it means to have veteran leadership and how having good veterans actually help the entire team and not just young players actually get better and how that changes the culture of a squad. Do you think the love of the game is the number one, like, I guess, make or break? If you, if you see someone 6'7 to 6'9, they can do all those things, but they don't quite have that like maybe they'll take time off or maybe you yeah. feel like they kind of halfway love it kind of halfway don't is that like a is that the number one qualifier i mean i think so i, I mean it's it's you could say it as that or you could say it as competitive spirit mm -hmm. right? yeah. like, like the the desire to win and the desire to get better fuels your energy to go to work every day yeah right like the guys that are real pros at that you know like they understand what an nba day is you know it's it's in early it's it's eating well it's lifting it's massage it's shooting drills it's film it's practice it's massage again it's cold tub it's hot tub it's you know and five o'clock you go home you know it's like yeah. and it doesn't bother them like they they get it and they have the juice and the energy to do that every day because they know that that's the level of greatness they're trying to attain that's that structure's built in, like, in terms of, so say someone comes into the league, they're a rookie. Is that, like, 5 no, o'clock? They, 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 they have to They have to build not that. everybody does that. Of course not everybody does that. But, and they have, to, they have to learn what being a pro is. And, and they see, you know, they see some of the, the really good players and what they do, and they learn from it. One of the things that made me, when I was in sales, one of the things, I was the bottom quartile in sales, the, the thing that really took me from bottom quartile to top was organization and structure. And I basically just borrowed it mm -hmm. from someone who was really good at it. Because mm -hmm. it makes I'm not great at it at all. I just mm -hmm. took it and copied it and followed it. Is that something that young guys learn from, from vets? And are there certain vets that are really, really good and organized and, and pass those things down? For sure. That's what the vets do. They, they teach them, you know, how to be, you know, true professionals. They... Um, set the tone, the, the, the organization, your, your organization you work for, the culture there probably spurred some of that for you. And yeah. that's, that does the same for our players. Um, yeah, and, it, and, it, and it's really infectious and it's really something that goes from one guy to the next. Like, you know, like for us, I can't be, you know, our, our player development that people talk so much about is, you know, truly 12 months a year. 
and the new guys come in and they get on board because the train's moving and in the it, lo it looks like it's going in the right direction so they get on board you know who's the best vet that you've been around that does that really well well i mean there's a bunch of them right i mean there's there's i could give you you know certainly Kawhi was was super interesting to watch him again like put in his day at the office like that yeah and again it never phased him like oh you know getting out of getting out of the car in the morning oh i gotta do this again like that wasn't even anywhere in his sphere of thought right mm. it was just like this is it i'm i'm going for a level of greatness and here's the day here's the day of work ahead of me kyle lowry's like that i mean kyle's a kyle's a like 6 a.m he's running and he's uh, you know like he's done working out before everybody else even gets to the building you know what i mean wow. like yeah. like you know so there's there's some real tone setters uh, uh, there in the in the organization there are a ton of teams that draft on potential they are very reluctant to take an older player like a uh, chris duarte for example Someone who played three or four years in college, they just don't feel as high on because they don't have as much, quote-unquote, upside, right? We know what their upside is. It's a new philosophy, really, going and finding players who are as young as they can come and you imagine who they could possibly be, even though they've only shown glimpses of that thing, a la Shaden Sharp, right? I wanted to know what Nick thinks about that. Gave a very political answer, a very diplomatic answer, but I think one that, that shows that every team, every GM has a different perspective on who they look for and why. It just came from, I just I just spoke at a, at a conference and um, the guy speaking in front of me, they asked him about, he, he's a front office guy, and they asked him about the exact same question, like this potential thing, what do you think about? And there was guys getting drafted that didn't even average five points. And, and, he, and he, he said, listen, what I told you before, I got enough to worry about. I don't, I don't need to criticize or worry about what other teams are doing. I got enough to worry about my own team. But um, he said, I'm in the school of, and he mentioned Duarte. And he really? Said, yeah, he mentioned him and said, that guy can play. And that's the school I'm in. Right? Yeah. That's the school I'm in. The guy can play. And, uh, and uh, I'm not very good at looking down the road and potential he said I'm not smart enough to do that or whatever so I'm in the I'm in the school of the guy can play and I would I would say that there's just different ways to the to the same path a lot of times there's lots of, to me I always say there's lots of different paths to a title yeah right and and everybody's got their own own way they think they can get there yeah it was an interesting watching kind of the pre-draft content around Shaden because no one's really seen Shaden play five on five in a year and a half yeah. and at that point you have to be drafting on, you know, what you think he would be versus guys that have been in the league or in, in, in college for in college for three, four years. Um, which player other than Coloco do you think is going to become, I guess, I guess the, the longest career pro? Like, could you see? Like for our team? Just or? coming out of this draft, oh, do you think? I don't know. Um, I mean, there's a lot of guys. I mean, obviously – there's a bunch of them. I, the number one pick is a good player. He's yeah. got, he got a great body. He's got, you know, he's I think huge. He's, he's huge and I he's strong. I, I saw him play a lot this year. Uh, one of my assistants, Adrian Griffin's son, was you know starter at yeah. AJ. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I saw them play a lot, and you know, I see a I see a big, strong, athletic guy with a lot of skill. That usually, those are usually pretty good qualities for a good good yeah. long career. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I guess you never know, you know. I mean, I really like just some other guys that I know a little bit more. I really like um, Keegan Murray at Iowa. Um, to watch them play a lot is where I'm from. I, I like Ben Matherin. Yeah. I, I coached him with the Canadian team. You know, there's some guys I have a little bit more knowledge and seen them play a little bit more that I think are, are going to be good. In this conversation or this part of the conversation, I wanted to get his thoughts on Canadian players. Nick, if you don't know, is the coach of the Canadian of Team Canada, and there's a bunch of young Canadian players that are rising to prominence. I wanted to understand why that was happening. Why are all of these Canadian players rising to this level of stature? Why are we seeing kids like Shea, Gilgis Alexander, and Lou Dort come out of the woodwork? What is the catalyst here? 
he gave a few different factors that I thought were really interesting, and one of them was connected to actually the Kawhi Leonard trade. Well, there's no video in this interview, but you're rocking uh, the Team Canada quarter zip, or actually full zip. <laughs> a lot of, lot of pros coming out of Canada right now, and a lot of good Canadians um, that. I think there's like almost like an emergence. Uh, you're seeing this happen, right? And and yes. do you see that? And yes. like, why do you think that's happening? Um, certainly, it's it's kind of like this golden era of basketball in Canada um, on a lot of fronts. You know, one the Raptors winning it in 2019. You think that mattered? Oh, it mattered a little bit. Really, it mattered from a standpoint of basketball's really like front and center. Yeah, it's the true for Canada. It's the true kind of melting pot everybody from everywhere is what Canada kind of is mm -hmm. and they all relate to basketball mm -hmm. right so that's one thing uh listen you know when you go when I go you know talk to those guys about you know what you know the guys on my Canadian national some of the younger guys what spurred you guys you know was it was it was it Vince Carter you know everybody says Vince Carter like turned on this generation to basketball and and they, you know, they all say to me, no, man, it's like Corey Joseph and, and you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's like Wiggins and, you know, yeah. the guys that like were like right here playing with us a few years ahead of us and we see them making it and, 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 you know, they're setting, you know, like, like RJ saw Wiggins get drafted high when he was probably like, I don't know, I don't want to get it 13, 14 years old yeah. and said, I want to be that guy, you know, and I think that again manifests itself and. And um, that's one thing, and, and there's a ton of talent. They've got some unbelievable coaches in those youth groups. They've, they really are committed to building these guys out. My bosses at Canada Basketball, Rowan Barrett and Michael Meeks, they, they, don't, they, they uncover every stone across Canada wow. and find these guys and get them in positions where they can you know, succeed. And they've done, a, they've done an amazing job of just guys keep coming through, but a lot of people playing up there. There's a lot of talent and it probably should keep happening for a while. Is it a matter too of like seeing what a player, like some of the things that they're good at so early and helping them develop, like how do, and putting a plan in place for them to develop certain skills for being NBA ready? Maybe, but I think it's probably more of just opportunity. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, you know, whatever, wherever they see a kid play, you know, a 14-year-old or 13-year-old or something, and they say, you know, there's something there's something there with him. He's got size. He's got athleticism. Or he's looking in plays. It's interesting, whatever. And then they find out, you know, some background work, and then they decide where they can send him. And usually they'll send him to a good program, and then that kind of takes care of it. You know what I'm saying? Like they just get them in the right place to – to learn, get coached, um, play, um, and grow up. And um, they just do a good job of that. And there's a lot of places that they can send them, and they put them in the right places. Sometimes outside of Canada, right? Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. I think, what, Ben went to Mexico? Yeah, they, they've, they've had guys go a bunch of, you know, a bunch of prep schools and a bunch of places, yeah. That's fascinating to me, just how different that is than, than the U.S. and yeah. international basketball as a whole. When I watched Juancho Hernan Gomez play Bo Cruz and he was training in the hustle, I said to myself, that right there is the kind of player Nick Nurse would want. A guy who's like almost seven feet tall, can handle like a guard, can put a ball through tires that are moving. He's going around screens. He's shooting deep threes. He's setting screens. He's rolling he, not only is he the one that's doing that he's also the one coming off the screens and shooting so i asked him have you seen the hustle well he had not but they did sign bo cruz so i assume after this interview he watched it and must have agreed i think this is a kid who is the perfect role player for the raptors did you see hustle by any chance <laughs> you only the like a millionth Two person? Million, yeah, a millionth person to ask me. I have not seen it yet. It's on my to-do list for sure. Yeah. But international basketball scouting is kind of like front and center in that, in that movie. Um, yeah. I've got to watch it. I yeah, you have to. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, I, know, I know. I heard it's good. I think the thing 
that's interesting about the amount of Canadian players that are coming into prominence are the fact that not only are they really good at getting buckets like Andrew Wiggins, we're getting some of these dogs like Ben Matherin. We're getting a little Lou Dortz of the world. And since, like I said, Nick coaches Team Canada, I wanted to ask him, like, you think that they could beat Team USA? What do you think? His answer was delightful and shows they are backing down from absolutely no one. Do you think Team Canada, there's some studs on there, yeah, right? Yeah. Shea, Wiggins, Dort, Ben. I mean, it's just the list goes on and on. I think I made kind of like a, a I mean, Josh Primo, who a lot of people, he's been the darling of, of the summer league this year. Everybody's yep. kind of high on him. Dylan mm-hmm. Brooks, um, Cam Birch, all, all those guys. Like, do you think that team beats Team USA? <laughs> <laughs> um. I think that team has a chance to, to get itself in position um, to do very well, right? I would I would uh, I would say they've got a lot of depth at Team yeah. USA, and they've they got do. a lot of pick from. But and, here's the thing, though: there's a yeah. lot of players deciding to opt out of Team USA to get their body right for the NBA. Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes down to it, though, when you get to the Olympics, you know, I think a lot of they're going to get a good good roster put Crop, together, yeah. right? So. I mean, listen. We gotta, we gotta. Our guys play against those guys every day. Um, our goal would be to make sure we can get our guys there. Try to get them together a bit. You know, let them play over a couple summers. That always helps chemistry and continuity. And you know, we certainly shouldn't be afraid to play them. In Nick's book, it was clear that there was a lot of challenges inside of the bubble. How could you not have them? It was it seemed like the worst, honestly. But no team faced the issues that Toronto had faced, having to play games in Tampa Bay for an entire year with a group of fans that were not fans of them and did barely even know they were there. Away from home for three months, quarantining, wristbanding, to not going close to one another, sci-fi stuff. I wanted to get his perspective on not only the bubble but what it was like in Tampa Bay and I wanted to see if there was a positive side that people don't often talk about. You said that wasn't a huge fan of the bubble. I get that. Mm-hmm. Like, I opted out of that. Yeah. Was there anything or is there anything that you think about in terms of what you did in the bubble or experiences or relationships that you look back on, and, like, with nostalgia or with, like, fond memories? <laughs> um... I mean, yeah, I mean, it was it was okay, right? It was okay. Like, um, the best thing was the ease of just going from your hotel room to the games and practice and stuff. You know, you're, it's not like a, a typical road game where you're getting home at 3.30 in the morning. You know, I've been in bed by 11, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I just walk down the hall and go up to the room and crawl in bed. So that was nice. Um, and so, so I think more than anything, it was good to just be able to – figure out a way to continue playing. That was great. Um, but my, my thoughts more like now, I mean, even this morning I was thinking about it, like I was looking out over our summer league practice and and just looking about how great it was and thinking back to when we started going into the bubble, like we had one player and one coach allowed on the gym. And they would work out and then somebody would come in and clean the whole gym and then one more player and one coach would come in like and you now you're looking out and seeing all these coaches all these players all the front off everybody in there like you know literally hundreds of people at a practice and it's just like it's incredible to think back to that one player one coach from eight in the morning till 10 at night to get everybody through the door you know yeah and kill kind of like doesn't have a very vibey thing like like there's not much vibe there Masai said when you guys went to Tampa and I I made jokes about this on the pod like no one is harsher for no reason than Tampa Bay people on the Raptors for just no reason like I saw stories they were just booing for no reason Masai said he thought being there set the team back a year and if you guys would have had to be there another year it would have set the franchise back five. Mm-hmm. How come? Uh, first of all, uh, Tampa was a very enjoyable place to live. Yeah, right? it's warm. The weather was great. We had an inc- yeah. did an incredible job of setting up the practice facility and, and all that stuff. But a couple things. One, 
most of the local Tampa people didn't even know we were there. Yeah. Because I'd be at the park with my kids or whatever. They're like, hey. Say, what are you doing here? And I'd be like, oh. They're like, what? You know, what are you talking about? Yeah. You know, and I'm like, well, I coach the Toronto Raptors, but we're playing out of Tampa because COVID. And they'd be like, you know, like, didn't make an impact at mm-hmm. all. That was one thing. Two, we didn't have a lot of crowds. We were shut down a lot. Going to no fans to... Then they'd let three or 4,000 in, and most of them would be cheering for the Heat or the Lakers right. or whatever. So that was even, like, another kick to the yeah. backside. Yeah. Um, so it was just everything was strange. It just felt really strange the whole time we were there. So the strangeness, though, why does that set a fran- – like, how does that set a franchise back, though, in terms of what you're trying to build? Is it just the continuity in – the place that you're supposed to be is it yeah i just think that well put it this way like we have a lot of canadians that work for us right and they've never really lived outside of anywhere but canada and they got kids in school and they're taking them out of school and they're mm. i mean it, it is uprooting everybody's like flow and rhythm um from a lot of standpoints and it just again they're just um there was not a um, very good flow. Now, listen, we, we actually started playing really well. I mean, I don't even remember where we finished that year. It was pretty low, mm-hmm. 11th maybe or 12th. But we were at one point up to 4th. Mm-hmm. We, we had a really bad start, 2-8 and ten, two and eight or something. Lost a bunch of buzzer beaters in the first two weeks. Then we got going. You know, we went to Philly and beat them. Philly came down would be would be them like back to back we went to brooklyn and one we went to boston and one like we just picked off everybody at the top right in a row won a bunch of oh, games I remember got, that, yeah. got to up to like fourth and then we lost our entire team to COVID. yeah for like three weeks plus and we still had to keep going out there and getting then we just like we lost maybe 11 in a row mm-hmm. and we never really recovered from that yeah i didn't get too much time to talk about this book in depth because we had already gone a full hour but it's probably one of the best books on basketball I've ever read. It's called Rapture. If you haven't read it, pick it up at the library, buy it, whatever. But I did want to delve in a little bit into the title. If you haven't picked up a copy, like I said, do it. You're going to learn a lot about Nick, more about hoops in general. I think it's great. Uh, But I did want to get his mindset into the title, and I thought that it was really funny uh, how it came to be. Title of the book, I was first thing I thought of, because I have some friends that are in the book publishing business, uh-huh. and they've told me this, that the that authors really take great care. One of the things that they spend a lot of time on, on is the title. Yeah. Uh, really quite a word, right? Uh, rapture. How did you come upon that, that title? <laughs> yeah. What were you trying well, to communicate? I'm not sure your friends in the publishing, I'm not sure I fall into that category if I took great care in that title or not, to be honest with you. I, you know, when it goes down, um, they start sending titles and asking for your feedback, and I'm pretty laid back, man. I was just like, what do you guys think is best? And that's <laughs> when it kind of ended up, so I, I let them roll with it, really, yeah. Because the, de- the definition, they said, uh, it's like the, the title, what is it? It's uh, better describes like the, the reaching the pinnacle of basketball coaching, I think is like getting to ascend. Is that kind of what that meant to them? Or like to win a title is, is getting to the pinnacle of your career? Or? I don't know. I think, I think it was more like... Um, I'm not like a household name or anything, right? And I think they were with the title being so long and drawn out, they were trying they were trying to explain like like what this book was who this person is and right. what and what and what why you should buy it or read it, I guess. It's part That'd of the That'd be business. more my guess. Nobody ever told me that, but that's kind of my guess. There's a lot of news about Nick Nurse being courted by the Los Angeles Lakers. There's no fucking way. There's no shot. Did you see how dysfunctional this place is compared to the Raptors, the gold standard of how to run a team? There was no shot he was going to the Lakers. Not even sure why those reports were out. Did not fit his personality type in any way. I wanted to get his thoughts on those headlines that were coming out about him and why he thought that they were. I had to ask. I had to ask. His answer did not disappoint. But you don't strike me as 
an LA <laughs> guy. Like Thanks you strike me as someone who wants to have yeah. a nice low key and also the, the culture that you guys have been building in Toronto. Uh, am I wrong about that? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't know again, you know, where that stuff comes from sometimes. Obviously you said, you know, the news is um, semi real or fake or whatever. Yeah. Like fake news, but yeah, so you don't know where they start. I guess I guess you take it as a compliment, right? That that uh, I mean, it's a historic franchise. They got LeBron, you know, playing for them. It's yeah. uh, L.A. It's the Lakers, you know, all that stuff. So you take a little bit of take the compliment. Um, I'm just really focused on the rap. I mean, I love yeah. Toronto. I, I coach the national team. I like. Yeah. I'm, I'm like. Uh, You're embedded. I, I love it. <laughs> yeah. I love it so. I don't know. Yeah. And I'm under contract. So. Yeah, I don't know. Exactly, exactly. I also finally got Nick to do some rapid fire questions. Just a fun little game to get you, the listener, to know him a little bit better. And I think that even though he's a, a bit introverted, a little bit like me, when you get to know him, he's very funny, very insightful, very interested in other people doing well and helping others. He had, by the way, no reason to do this interview with me i think the pr people were actually kind of mad that he decided to do it he gets a lot of interview requests but of course being the mensch that he is uh he decided to say yes since it was two years in the making and of course as we know and what you'll find out here is he has a very uh elite basketball mind uh let's do a couple of uh of like rapid fires okay are you ready yep last tv show you binged Breaking Bad again. Uh, start bench cut. Eric Clapton, Damian Marley, BB King. What? Start bench cut. Yeah. Holy three starters. You, How, you why did you start, ask me those three? Because they're like it's a hard decision. <laughs> <laughs> you they're like my favorites. Yeah. Seriously. Um, starting. I can't cut any of them, so you can't. This isn't. I'm not answering this question. I love Clapton. He was one of the first concerts I saw that like turned me into a lover of blues music. I saw him in 1991 at the Royal Albert Hall in London, and he was playing 24 nights there. And I saw him perform with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. And like, I was like, wow. And I started going backwards and tracking his career, and he started out as a blues artist. Um, I've just literally written a not the forward, but like a special appreciation for B.B. King's new book that's come out. I took a course from his biographer, photographer, um, History of Blues in America. We became friends and so I'm deep into B.B. King as well. And if you ask me what my top three favorite songs are, one of them's gonna be Welcome to Jam Rock from Damian Marley. So Pick I'm, some not good ones. Any, I'm not cutting any of those three people. <laughs> Favorite memory from coaching in the London games? Favorite memory was walking down the hallway, going out to the first game. Uh, it was it was a temporary gym. It was kind of a weird, long hallway, and me and Chris Finch were like the only two guys walking out to open the door to go on the court. And, and I remember just stopping him and saying, man, thanks for letting me be a part of this. This is like, <laughs> we're going to go through this door. This is going to be really something, man. And that's my favorite memory. Tough day, tough loss. What's the song that you play either on the guitar or on the piano? Um, well, the song I play the most is probably Purple Rain by Prince. And that again goes back to, you know, being childhood memory. I rode a Greyhound bus when I was 17 years old, about six hours to Minneapolis to see the Purple Rain tour in 84. Wow. And I've never been the same since, so I play that probably the most. Nice. Uh, best trash-talking player in the NBA? Mm, I don't know. I'm not very good at the trash-talking stuff. You uh, trash-talk all the time. I'm just trying to think who is good at it, though, right? How about the most trash-talking? Um, again, difficult question. Well, it's probably Draymond. Yeah, he talks a lot. Yeah. Does does anybody rival Larry Bird at that? 
Again, I, I can't give first-hand knowledge to that. Yeah. But the stories you hear. And, yeah. And I was fortunate enough to spend a lot of time around Kevin McHale, so I heard a lot of yeah. a lot of those stories. He's one of the all-time great storytellers. Um, but I doubt it. Best trash-talking coach in the NBA. There's no coaches that trash-talk. You don't think so? Yeah. That's a lie. You're smiling. You're smirking like that's no, false. No, no, no. There isn't any. You guys aren't competitive with one another at all? Not really. Not in the you're hall? Re- you're no. really, no, you're really, honestly, you're really in your own sphere so much. And you don't really, like, cross paths with the other head coaches very much. Um, you, you know, it, seriously, there's times when there's, like, really good friends of mine on the other's bench. And you don't even get to see them. You come into the town, you play the game, you're on the plane, you're gone. And you literally, it's like you wave down and that's about it sometimes. Last one. What do you think it would be like to have an NBA team in Vegas? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good market, right? I think they've proven that with uh, the other, you know, the NHL and the NFL, WNBA. I think it's a great market. Cool. Thank you so much. My man, Nick Nurse, giving me some time. Uh, I appreciate you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That's all the time that we have for the Heat Check. Sincere thanks uh, to Nick Nurse for carving out time for me at Summer League. I apologize to the folks in the Toronto Raptors PR department for not clearing it through you. Uh, Next time I will. I promise. Uh, We will be back next week with an all-new episode featuring the final encore from the logo himself, Jerry West. We will be breaking down rookies and young players that are at Summer League who they could become, what they like about him, what he likes about them, uh, and help you prepare for the upcoming season, which is right around the corner. I think training camp is next week. A follow-up for the rest of the Heat Check. We also have parts one and two of Jerry West up on the feed. Check those out if you haven't already. And please do not forget to download, subscribe. Please tell your friends and follow us on social at, at this Heat Check and Trista Crick on TikTok.